Hello, and welcome to the Twin Geekcast with Calvin and David. This week we'll be ranking the Coen Brothers, from Buster Scruggs to Blood Simple. We'll also have a lightning round at the box office. Enjoy the show. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Welcome back to the show. This week we have an interesting top ten, and we've gathered a a group of our friends around the site to put together a list about the Coen Brothers. Yeah, that'll be exciting to get to, but first let's talk about this week's uh, box office. Uh, We're going to go real quick this week so we can get to our films. Uh, At number ten we have Burn the Stage, the movie. A movie about a Korean supergroup, a boy group. You know a bit about them. Yeah, uh, my fiancé is a big fan of uh, the huge Korean pop trend right now, and it is apparently a lot bigger than we both thought. You know, they've got this new documentary for one of the biggest bands, but I don't know much other than that. The only thing I know about it is that it set a new record for the live event concert at the movies, uh, beating out One Direction. Ah, well, I guess we're all happy about that then. (laughs) I think we are. (laughs) At number nine, we have The Girl in the Spider's Web, a new dragon tattoo story. Um, I went to the theater to go see the new... um, Fantastic Beasts, and looked at the audience and realized I'd rather be sitting in this, but but I have some regrets. I felt like it was a, uh, uh, I felt like I wasn't really watching anything. I, I, there's nothing to engage or grasp onto there. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like uh, from some of the other reviews I've read of Fantastic Beasts, which are scathing, by the way, yeah. uh, you probably you know would have been the same either way. But I mean, it would be good to. S- I was going to say, it'd be good to say as well that we actually do have Calvin's review for uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web available to read on the TwinGeeks.com right now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Go check that out. See, um, you could get a bit more of my perspective there. At number eight, we have Overlord, which I genuinely enjoyed. Went out to with my fiance. I didn't tell her that it was a movie about Nazi zombies. So, oh, well. um, <laughs> I told her it was about World War II, and she went into it not knowing exactly what it was. So mm-hmm. it has a pretty amazing uh, drop sequence with a bit of computer effects, but after that, it goes back to more practical effects. I really enjoyed it. That's good. And it's not a Cloverfield film, right? No, it's not a Cloverfield film, but I feel like it might have benefited in some way that it could have pulled in a bit more cosmic horror into like the zombie occultism. And I don't think it leveled that well onto the occultism side. It's more just Nazi zombies, Wolfenstein. Which, you know, that's a fine time at the theaters, but there's not a lot of depth there. Yeah, well, as long as it's enjoyable. Yeah, right. At number seven, we have A Star is Born, which is refusing to leave the charts. Yeah, well, it'll be there. Yeah. And we have, uh, before a film strikes over, there's some of the old ones left on there. I'd encourage anyone to go check those out before seeing the new one. Um, same story, retold different ways. At number six, we have The Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Yep. And at number five, we have Widows. Um, there's a review of that on the site as well. I greatly enjoyed that. Uh, Steve McQueen uh, is a great filmmaker, and uh, it was exciting to see what he did with the Jillian Flynn. Um, they write, he, he writes pretty good thrillers, and it works pretty well. Yeah, it seems like it's the, the big to-go-see movie right now. Um, probably the, the best thing, one of the best you're going to see this year. From what I've seen. And I think as far as... Yeah, absolutely. As far as our top ten goes, I'd say it's like the critical darling of the moment. 
Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see this film in maybe not much else right now. Probably not, but let's see what else is here just in case. Okay. <laughs> At number four, we have Instant Family. Uh, that's the Mark Wahlberg, Wahlberg uh, uh, adopts orphans movie. Ah, uh, so. more Mark Wahlberg movies. I love those. Yeah, they're they're really the best. Mm-hmm. Um, the best at being like perfectly mediocre and not having any kind of identity. Just like entirely disposable films. I I mean, I could probably name five of them that you've already forgotten if I didn't already forgotten them. I mean, it would be impossible to compose a list because we've both forgotten all of them. Yeah. And at number three, we have Bohemian Rhapsody. I feel like Rami Malek probably wishes he were in a different film, and I wish we got the Sasha Baron Cohen version. I, well, I was going to say, I agree. Uh, you know, when there was a lot of buzz around Sasha doing it a couple years back, that was super exciting. But, I mean, obviously we're here now, and I don't think we're ever going to get a Sasha Baron Cohen um, queen movie. You know, so that's disappointing. But, who knows? I mean... I guess what we have is entertaining people. It's still doing a lot of success. I've seen a lot of people going out and seeing it, and that's great. But I personally don't really want to go out and see this because of a lot of the the scandal involved. Excuse the Queen pun. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about what the Sasha Baron Conan version would be, it would be all about, like, the hedonism and enjoying the rock star lifestyle. And this film's more like it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a curse for Freddy or something, or like he does it without enjoying it, and there's, you know, no real fruit to his, uh, to his interest in like that hedonistic lifestyle. But I felt like the Sasha Baron Cohen would be more honest. Well, I think that would be a more interesting film in general as well. I think the best biopics are ones that take someone from real life and kind of blow up their, you know, uh, biggest feature to make a commentary on it or to expose it in some way, not necessarily to represent the person entirely. There's a story to tell about a character, not a person. And that's what makes an interesting biopic. And I think what's kind of strange about it is that it was Queen who prevented that from happening because they wouldn't put their songs into a film like that. And so in this way, we got a less accurate version of uh, kind of the placement of events and the context of their songs. But we kind of lost out on what we were there for. You know, it's a shame. I guess they wanted to you know, present more of their vision of the band than an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, I think it's, I think it's perfectly fine. I, I think the live aid part's worth going for, but I also think you should just go on YouTube and watch the actual live aid performance. Which is incredible for those who have not seen it. And another thing is like the film presents it like live aid was only about queen. Like they were struggling to get like a, oh, you know, that's... money. Yeah, that's not great. That's really kind of messed up a little bit. Because there were so many important and great performances at Live Aid. That was a huge deal. I mean, Live Aid was about something so much bigger than Queen. Yeah, it was like the switchboards weren't even coming on. People weren't calling in for like Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, U2, whatever. You know? That's not mm-hmm. true. At number two, we have uh, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch. Which, um, I feel like it's a bit early, but it has a couple good Tyler the Creator songs. Uh, I guess that's good. I mean, what I think, this is kind of the perfect sort of film for your your family night out around Thanksgiving. This is what everyone's going to go see. You know, they're certainly not going to pack in to see Widows. No, and and uh, Illumination, they're perfectly fine. They're not that interesting, but they make, uh, they make fluffy kids' films. I think that's fine. 
there's, there's certainly a place for it. there's certainly a place in the world for innocuous entertainment to you know numb your mind for 90 or so minutes you know we're not gonna uh, shit on that or anything like that i love you know movies that don't do anything but entertain me for a bit even if they're not all that great and this seems to be one of those and that's fine it's just doesn't leave much of interest to talk about. It's a remake of a Grinch, the, the Grinch movie. Yeah. What do you want? And uh, following that, we have uh, Fantastic Beasts at number one, which um, I I still conflicted on whether there are Fantastic Beasts fans or if there are only Harry Potter fans. Could you explain I, I, to me? Yeah, I think the idea is that, especially with what I've heard about the new film as well, is that it is just Harry Potter fans. J.K. Rowling is doing her best to cling on to this last remnants of this franchise and make as much money out of it as possible by exploring the, you know, young life of Dumbledore and, you know, what's going on with how Voldemort came into and whatnot, and it's... Just stop it. Has there ever been a yeah. good prequel? Like, like, a series, at least, anyway. You know, I don't think there yeah. has been. Yeah, I'm having trouble coming up with a great example of how this could work. Well, I mean, think about what, you know, every big major franchise, what happens when we go back and try and tell what happened before then. You got, like, the Star Wars prequels, and those suck, and you got the Hobbit movies, and those didn't work out at all. And now we got Fantastic Beasts, which is, you know, telling what happened before Harry Potter. And it's also not doing great, but people are going to see it. Oh, God, they are going to see it. I mean, it had pretty incredible showings. It's, uh, it's almost double the second place film, and then after that, everything falls off a cliff. I mean... We might might have wanted to see a little bit more support of Widows. Yeah, of, of everything that's been listed so far here, that's really the only one that even would remotely interest me, I think. You know, everything yeah. else is kind of like, oh, I've seen that before. There's some other things like Green Book and uh, Private War further down the list that didn't make it. But uh, I don't. there's not much else. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I guess uh, if we've reached the top, then it's better to get onto the better list. Our oh, yeah. ranking of the Coen brothers. So I guess we should talk about how we composed this list. Would you like to uh, give a little spiel on that? Sure. So, you know, originally we were thinking about doing just one film today. We talked about doing Buster Scruggs since it just came out. But then we kind of were talking about just the Coen brothers in general between all of our contributors here at the Twin Geeks. And we're like, well, why don't we make a whole podcast about the Coen brothers? We'll talk about how we view their filmography, their entire filmography, and where we all kind of feel among them ranking-wise. So we kind of all had a big discussion for the last week or so and made some compromises for certain people's interest and came up with a more or less definitive list of what our collective ranking of the Coen brothers would be. And I guess we should say it's definitive amongst us that we um, collated our opinions to come up with the, you know, some of us had personal favorites that we had to push forward. Yeah, and some of us hated some of these and had to push them down. <laughs> yeah, and some of us hated some that others loved, and we had to make a middle compromise. Yeah, so this list, you know, as we said, is not definitive of any kind of say. We're not saying this is exactly what the best Coen Brothers films are, but they are to us. All ranking lists, if you're not already aware, are, you know, subjective. They are applying only to the people who are making them. You can't really claim what's the best of any director or just any film in general. No one can make that claim. That's one other thing about this list, is the Coens rank so high with us that there's only a few that aren't of special interest. Right. Uh, you know, unlike most directors who maybe get, like, one huge or big important film, the Coens have at least several masterpieces by our standards, and 
we'll of course get there, but we gotta start at the bottom. And we'll blow through some of these, because they're not as fun to talk about. Um, for the first one, we have the Lady Killers, uh, which I think I might be the lone person in the group. That's yeah, I, I think you took the bullet for us on this one to watch it. it. It does have the reputation as the worst Coen Brothers film, and it seems like you walked away with largely the same opinion as everyone else. I wouldn't be surprised if every single Coen Brothers uh, list comes out with this near the bottom. Um, it has to be near the bottom. I feel like Tom Hanks is kind of a perfect fit for the Coen's universe, so... I'm a little bit surprised that uh, they couldn't do something more with him. Hopefully they can bring Tom Hanks back into another amazing project someday, because you're right, the Tom Hanks is like kind of perfectly cut from cloth for a Coen Brothers script, and it's a shame that he gets wasted on such a poor film. Yeah, and I mean, it was originally portrayed by Alec Guinness, which uh, it was perfect for him, and I feel like this is the other thing about the film, is that it's the Coen's working off someone else's design, so... Uh, they go into this old lady's basement, and they dig out a hole. They try to reach some riches. I think uh, that's one thing that we'll identify throughout, is that money's always taken, or uh, or that someone's always on a path toward, like, a bag of money, basically. Mr. Pancake is an ardent foe of the Federal Reserve, and is, in fact, one of those eccentrics one often reads about, hoarding his entire life savings, in Mr. Pancake's case, in a hefty bag that is his constant companion. Yeah, the Coen brothers certainly have this, um, you know, tendency to make uh, scripts about some kind of crime. There are lots of films, obviously, that kind of revolve around crime, but the Coen brothers in particular really like their crime and money kind of surrounding stories. And we'll, get, and we'll see a lot of that as we go through this list. At 17, we have Intolerable Cruelty with George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, he plays a divorce lawyer, and she plays... A woman who's trying to divorce a bunch of men for their money. Mm. That sounds like the right role for Catherine Zeta-Jones. Not very interesting. It shows that uh, Deacons and the Coens are both imperfect, and they they can make a flop. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I mean, this is also another one I didn't see, and your uh, takeaways from it aren't encouraging me any, clearly. And did you say that uh, these last couple were kind of a lead-up to uh, something a bit different? Yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting. These were back-to-back -back, uh, films from the Coen brothers, and from my understanding, these are also kind of his their worst-regarded films as well. So, I don't know, as we'll see, I think we'll get, get to it a little bit later, but after this, they kind of took a couple years' break from making the movies, and they came back with a really big hit. I just don't feel like there's any of the magic there, the kind of Coen personality, the writing's not quite the same. There's a courtroom scene where uh, George Clooney's kind of uh, tripping over language and people are, um, you know, they're talking about, oh, he's the silly man, or who was the silly man anyway? What's good for the gander, Your Honor? Is this a legal argument, what's good for the gander? you got to play your tape, Freddie. Mr. Messi has a point there. I'm going to allow it. Were there any other specifications? She specificated a silly man. Objection, Your Honor. I'm going to allow She it. specificated a man who, though clever at making money, would be easily duped and controlled. Objection, Your Honor. It breaks into, like, Cohen territory for a few minutes, but mm -hmm. that's really the only part of the film I liked. Oh, well, I don't know. I'll check it out eventually because I want to be Cohen complete, but, <laughs> yeah, not not soon, I suppose. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Uh, what do we have at 16 here? 16, we have uh, Hail Caesar. That was their most recent film before um, The Buster Ballad of Scruggs. Buster Scruggs just came out this year. 
And Hail Caesar, I went and saw in theater. I haven't seen it since then, but mm-hmm. it's pretty good, I guess. It's a kind of old Hollywood story, you know, kind of takes place in classic Hollywood going on there. And Josh Brolin stars as Eddie Mannix as he's running around fixing everyone's problems, but there's not really a story so much to speak of, and Brolin's character isn't super intriguing, so you're kind of just going from place to place to see the wacky events going on, and I don't know, sometimes they border into two ridiculous events, like there ends up becoming a subplot with a submarine, a communist submarine at that. Uh, it's just really weird and odd. There's and that's an interesting on. thing that happens with these lower-end Cohen comedies, is that the subplot almost becomes like a super text. Like, it almost becomes the the central theme of something, and there's... Uh, Hail Caesar just didn't work for me at all. I, I don't think it's very funny. I think they have better de- deconstructions of Hollywood that we'll get to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be interested to watch it again sometime, but again, I'm not, like, dying to for any reason, you know... It's nobody's favorite Cohen film, as far as I've seen. So, not yeah, certainly not within our group. Uh, there oh, were a couple. Not. There were a couple arguments like, "Oh, it has a fine, a few good moments," but then we're looking at a list mostly made of films that are all good moments. Would that it was the same? Would that it was the same? Would that it was the same? My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would that it was the same? Would that it was the same? Would that it was the same? At least good. Like you know, these are the last two. I think are the only ones we could really call objectively bad in any way. I think so. Yeah. yeah. If from here on out there is at least one to many good things. Uh, yeah, I think the list is all green from here. Yeah, which is, of course, why we wanted to talk about them in the first place. Absolutely. Let's move into the good stuff. All right. What do we have at 15 here? 15. and number 15, we have Burn After Reading. Hello. Uh, Osborne? Osborne Cox? Yes. Uh, who is this? Um, this, um... Is this Osborne Cox? Who is this? Who are you? I'm a good Samaritan. I'm sorry I'm calling at such an hour, but I thought you might be worried. Worried? About the security of your shit. Burn After Reading's pretty fun. It was uh, right after No Country for Old Men Day. Made this uh, weird comedy where Brad Pitt, pl- Brad Pitt plays a strange uh, fitness instructor who's a little bit geeked out, and George Clooney plays an ugly man, which is a hell of a stretch. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, I mean, he, he seems so flubby and just uh, sloppy in the film. It's, I, think, I think that's like the joke of it, right? John Malkovich plays a guy who yells a lot, as he does. That is John Malkovich, yes. <laughs> so everyone true to form except George Clooney, who uh, I don't know. I think it's fun. I like the like the last film. I feel like it doesn't have a real plot. It kind of meanders through jokes until it ends. Mm-hmm. And it's not so bad for the Coen Brothers films to not have plot. Well, I mean, we'll get into that with at least one specific film I know a little later. But you know, they got to have really good characters and some great dark comedy. Those are the signature trademarks of the Coen brothers, and if you don't have enough of that, it's not going to be a home run, necessarily. 
And it's funny because, like, the the plot actually is, like, oh, there's, like, lost money or stolen documents, and that's effectively the plot of every movie we've discussed so far. Basically. Other than Hell Caesar, yeah. Well, I don't know, there's some kind of stolen subplot going on there. There's communist secrets of some shit, I don't exactly remember, but yeah, there's something. there's some sneaky crime stuff going on there for sure. Anyway. What do we have next? For number 14, we have the newest Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now, which yeah. which I loved, I, and I'm I'm really happy and interested to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so this is where the conversation gonna get a little interesting because <laughs> while everyone else around the world has been loving Mal the Buster Scruggs to varying degrees, old David over here hated it. He how hated dare it. you? <laughs> I uh, mean, what gives? It's it's such a fun Western film. It has no, so, no. It has so much going for it. No, it's six different stories, and they're all pieced together in a really interesting big vignette way. And wow. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> I'll say this at least: my initial reaction of it was incredibly harsher than it has been since. And I've been reading about the film occasionally as the days go by, and people giving better impressions. I'm like. Oh, so, like, where initially I thought that there was no consistent through line, no overarching theme or anything, people kind of come out more and explained what they think more, so I'm kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess I see that as well. But I'll still stick by some of my main points, and it's, and one of the biggest things is that it just looks bad. It looks awful. It's probably the worst shot Coen Brothers film, in my opinion. What we should say that your initial rating for it was two out of ten. Yeah, which is extremely harsh, and I have fixed it since then. So nobody fixed come at to, me. Fix it to a three. To a three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the some of the things that have come out about it, like there's an excellent article on Film Comment about how um, it's about the moral failing of men and how um, all Cohen films are essentially about that plot line. So. I mean, I guess that's the through line. Well, Once it's kind again, of a consistent through line with Westerns in general as well. You know, moralities and the failure people. You know, that's what High Noon is about as well. But, you know, High Noon looks good still. It has Gary Cooper. I think some of it looks good. The one with Tom Waits. Like, uh, even you were saying it has to be, like, stock footage. Okay, so, so yeah. But the Tom Waits one was the only actual one that I actually enjoyed watching. Because Tom Waits gives a great performance of it, and it's it paced very well, and it kind of escalates and goes to places that it makes sense. The opening shots of it were jarring for me because everything else in the film looked like cardboard and was completely washed out, <laughs> like lighting-wise. So to see that there was actual color and like detail to some of the shots, I was, you know, it was a jarring difference to see. I'm like, this has to be stock footage or something. Man. <laughs> And uh, and I especially, you know, I love that first uh, episode within it where you you uh, the, absolutely uh, love the initial uh, the ballad of Buster Scruggs there. I'd like me a splash of whiskey to wash the trail dust off in my gullet and keep my singing voice in pedal. Whiskey's illegal. This is a dry county. Well, what are they drinking? Whiskey. These outlaws. Oh, well, don't let my white duds and pleasant demeanor fool you. I, too, have been known to violate the statutes of man, and not a few of the laws of the Almighty. You ain't no outlaw, and we don't drink with tin horns. Sir, it seems that you are no better a judge of human beings than you are a specimen of one. Just on a brief inventory, I'd say that you could use yourself a shave and a brighter disposition. 
And lastly, if you don't mind me aspersing your friends, a better class of drinking buddy. I've seen it about five times now. I mean, I'm pretty dedicated to that bit. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the better ones, I think. I don't think it's all bad, but it just doesn't work for me personally because, you know, I just don't like the lack of reason or anything going on, the the jarring difference in violence versus tone. Though I do like the one bit where he, he kicks the table and he makes the guy shoot himself in his face. That, that's some good slapstick. Yeah, I mean, he said it was... Then he turns around and he's like, oh, it was suicide. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, the other thing, like uh, him shooting the gun backwards with the mirror, that didn't do anything for you? Yeah, it was all right. You know, I've seen better gags. <laughs> Again, I, I had more someone like I didn't find the character compelling, and that's always a huge thing for me. If the character don't work for me, then uh, the segment don't work for me. Oh man! But when he's coming into town, strumming on his guitar, and we see through like the middle of the guitar, and oh, I, I actually like... actively disliked that shot because of how unwestern it was. Like that was one of the first things to tip me off that I wasn't gonna like this film was that shot. Well, my fiance grew up with like a cassette of that, like an old cowboy uh, cassette, and she was like a. You know, this is really bringing her back. So I guess that's part of why we keep rewatching it. That makes sense to do, you know. And he's very much so Buster Scruggs, very much so kind of Roy Rogersy kind of type, you know, the the cowboy kind of going across the plains and singing songs and whatnot. But like I said, the cinematography was really off. I felt in a lot of places and felt very unwestern. But I'm probably just more of a, a western purist in general, so I'm gonna be harsher on that thing than most people. And I think that's one of the things that might disconnect you with this film is that it's not pure about its westernism at all. It's a, no. it's an, it's very, uh, it's an anti-western, but not in the way like a McCabe is. Well, yeah, it's it's I guess it's anti-western in the fact that it's not important that it's a western. It's not specifically mm -hmm. about the west. You know, if you move this setting elsewhere, you could largely still have the same film. I mean. Somewhat, maybe not like with the Oregon Trail or, um, yeah. or with that first. Well, I mean, section. I mean more like thematically than I do, you know, literally. Obviously, yeah. you know, you can't have a gold prospector when the gold rush wasn't going on. And I thought those themes were so fun. Uh, except, I think we're both on the same page about the uh, Liam Neeson one. Yeah, what's it? That one's called Meal Ticket, and yeah, yeah, that one doesn't work at all i think it's so it's like repetitive it does the same bit over and over and it gets really predictable by the end and it's supposed to be really sad but it's not someone on twitter said we should take ozzy mandias away from men because we're wearing it out and i'm yeah. starting to agree <laughs> i feel like a, between breaking bad and all of the things that it has influenced the last few years maybe we could give it a little break mm-hmm well I guess, uh, is there anything else to say about Buster Scruggs? I know it's the newest thing, so we should focus a little on it. Uh, but. Um, uh, it's great, and it's available uh, on Netflix, and David's uh, wrong about this one. I disagree, but <laughs> make, make a decision for yourself, people. It's the best film that Netflix has released that's not a Norson <laughs> Wells film. You know what? I'll at least agree with that, because Netflix has put out a lot of crap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so at number uh, 13, we have Miller's Crossing. Dream I had once. I was walking in the woods. I don't know why. Wind kept moving. Blew me out off. And you chased it, right? You ran and ran. Finally caught up to it. Picked it up. But it wasn't a hat anymore. 
it changed into something else. Something wonderful. Nah, it stayed ahead. And now I didn't chase it. Nothing more foolish than a man chasing his hat. Which I believe I have the authority here on. You haven't seen this one yet, yeah? Yeah. The one thing I know about it is it was kind of inspired by, like, they had a shot of, like, the hat drifting yep, through the wood. And that's the opening shot of the film, which is really fantastic. This film has a great opening and closing shot. The closing shot's actually a really nice homage to the ending of The Third Man, which we love here as well. Mm -hmm. But, oh, um... Yeah. Mills Crossing is basically a throwback to old 30s gangster films in kind of an updated sense. You know, you got the, the more bitter violence, you know, the harsher characters going on there. And it's a lot of fun, if not 100% compelling. I think it's just because the lead character, played by Gabriel Byrne, isn't entirely interesting. Um, the It's a combination, it's an adaptation of two Dashiell Hammett books kind of mushed together, and that's um, Red Harvest and The Glass Key. And Red Harvest has actually been adapted before by Akira Kurosawa into uh, Yojimbo, and then later ripped off by Sergio Leone for mm -hmm. Fistful of Dollars. But there, at least, you've got, you got the Sanjuro character sure. and the man with no name, and they're much more compelling than whoever the hell Gabriel Byrne is here. And and this is the one Cohen that I have not seen before I'm right. complete. So I'm yeah, no, and that's you do this totally one. fine. I'll talk about this one for a little while. It's got a great cast. You know, Gabriel Byrne is good. It's just that I think his character is not written terribly interesting. It's got uh, John Turturro in it, Cohen favorite. He plays a good role. He kind of goes back and forth between a whiny, desperate character to a smug kind of jerk once he kind of has the upper hand, and that's a lot of fun to watch. And then the best character, though, is probably played by Albert Finney. He plays kind of the main mob boss, and he has probably one of the best scenes in any Coen Brothers film. And it's this fantastic, almost magical scene of him kind of dodging all these gangsters coming to assassinate him around his house. He climbs out the window, he shoots some guys from behind, he climbs to the bed and hits some people while they're not expecting, all while this beautiful ballad of Danny Boy plays. And it's it's magical. Yeah. And at the very least, go up on YouTube, look up that scene, and if that should convince you enough to watch the film. Will do. Following that, at number 12, we have True Grit, which uh, was their most commercially successful film, yeah. and I'm a big um, fan of it. Well, I think it might be... Oh, no, I, I guess it's... I know it was their most recent film nominated for a bunch of Oscars, yeah. People did not give it credence that a young girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did happen. I was just 14 years of age when a coward by the name of Tom Chaney shot my father down and robbed him of his life and his horse and two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. I know the John Wayne performance is really good in the old one, but I really like the uh, young actress here. I feel like it's a woman's story, and I feel like that especially elevates this one yeah. over the classic. You know, I, I know a lot of the discussion when it comes to the Coen Brothers Drew Grit comes back to comparing it to the original, which we, we don't want to do too much here. We want to talk about the, you know, the Coen version more. But, of course, I'll just come out and for, say, as a Western purist, I am a little bit more of a fan of the John Wayne version. But I do also enjoy the new one with some reservations. Like, uh, I'm such a huge fan of the book that I, I love both versions dearly anyway. It doesn't really matter which one. I own both of them, and I'll watch both anytime. Um, but I think it's one of the best American stories, and the Coens are one of yeah, the best American you know, authors. I was going to say, I think that's a, a good point to bring up here, is that one of the 
distinct Cohen things that they have is that the Cohen brothers make films about America and people in America almost exclusively. You know, and westerns are, of course, a big American story, and they have dipped their fingers in there quite a few times, and they have a lot of influences to that, and, you know, it really comes back to, it, it's all surprising how far range their understanding of the people of America goes, as you'll see as we go through this list. They have quite a few different settings. And I think they're interesting kind of auteurs to put behind the idea coming from, like, yeah. middle America, where people always used to say that's the heart of the country, and those are the people that understand us, but it doesn't always mm -hmm. feel that way anymore. Well, definitely, uh, I think the Cohen brothers know who we all are. I'll be interested to see them take some more of a, maybe a Pacific Northwest turn sometime. We'll see how they do. Well, uh, you got it in uh, Buster Scruggs and didn't care for nah, it. Yeah, so. I mean, just... A... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Trying to incite arguments. <laughs> At uh, number 11, we have Raising Arizona. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But <laughs> biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. At the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And uh, Jesse's, uh, it was his dad's favorite movie growing yeah. up. and that's a really sentimental thing and nice to have. You know, it's been a long time since I've seen Raising Arizona, and I think you as well. So we actually asked uh, Jesse to give us a little write-up on it so that we can talk about it here and, you know, kind of highlight his thoughts and what he thinks. You mind if I go ahead and read that off, Calvin? Yeah, please. All right, so Jesse says... There's not much like raising Arizona. This is immediately evident as soon as you realize that a many-times convict speaks of, uh, as if he's in a Shakespearean play. Of course, leave it to the Coens to make it work somehow. They would go on to make many superior works throughout their careers, but many aspects of those films are now, that are now known as Coen-esque were first done in raising Arizona. This film remains an essential piece of their filmography and as just as essential stepping block for the progression of their artistic sensibilities. And I, think that's I feel a, like that's that's a pretty good summary of what I remember about Raising Arizona, and I uh, I always thought it was a funny movie. Um, I I like uh, Nick Cage in it, and I don't always like Nick Cage. Yeah, um, I think this is really the first time because this is their second feature um, that you see the Coens' inherent silliness and knack for some insane comedy really come through. And you know, in their first film, it's much more serious, but here we really get to see them go all out in terms of comedy. I mean. Nick Cage is running around stealing babies from furniture, you know, salesmen. That's kind of weird. Yeah, and then, like, the, I mean, the plot is in the baby is stolen, gets stolen from him, which is, like, another, like, another comedy loop that makes it really funny. Well, they also have this, like, insane bounty hunter character who looks like Mad Max from hell <laughs> coming down to, come, I mean, it's, it's a crazy movie. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, and it's crazy, and I think it shows off a lot of their early style, like you say. I think it's a diversion and unexpected after Blood Simple. All right, so I think now we can safely move on to our top ten Cohen films, yeah? Ten, we have uh, The Man Who Wasn't There. Sooner or later, everyone needs a haircut. For the kids, there's the Butch or the Heine, the Flat Top, the Ivy, the Junior Contour and occasionally the executive contour. Me, I don't talk much. I just cut the hair. 
Say he was being blackmailed. By who? You don't know. For having an affair. With who? You don't know. Did anyone else know about it? Probably not. You don't know. This is the, you know, the Coen brothers' first time really taking a shot at a full-on noir film. You know, this is probably the closest thing I've seen to a true to, you know, 1940s and 50s noir. Everything else has been very updated, but this really doesn't, you know, they really do their best here to emulate that in the most loving of ways. Yeah. I I mean, I hadn't even seen it until last week, and I immediately fell in love with the opening at the barbershop before he goes into the laundromat business and gets distracted by Scarlett Johansson. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's so beautiful an opening. It's stunning. Yeah. This is a um, fantastic film, I think, uh, from kind of all sides. I love it especially as a huge fan of noir films as well. And I think, you know, they're, a lot of the choices they make are really fantastic for For one thing, the casting of Billy Bob Thornton is pitch perfect. I mean, you could basically put him right up against Humphrey Bogart and, you know, do the same thing. He's doing the same thing as Bogart, and they're acting with his eyes, and he's just a brilliant noir guy. It works. Mm-hmm. And he's got a great voiceover throughout, and it's not always easy to pin a good, you know, through voice line to have a voiceover throughout an entire film like that, and he really carries it and from scene to scene makes the whole thing go really well. I would like to say, though, at the beginning, I thought I could probably uh, help you with getting it up higher, and then I thought the film went a little bit long. I mean, I think it needed to go as long as it did, but it also, it's a it's a winding noir tale. Well, winding I think... Noir yeah. tale. One of the problems is is that the film doesn't stick to its main plot from beginning to end. At a certain point, things in the main plot kind of stop happening for a bit for various reasons, and then it goes off into this B-plot with uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character's relationship with a young Scarlett Johansson. And I think that's about the time where the story starts to f the film starts to flounder a bit more. Even and then once it comes back around again... Oh yeah, she is really great. You know, you can see this is one of her earliest roles. This is the same year as Ghost World, I believe. So both these were big for her. And she does a great job here. And she can really hold her own against Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, I guess we should also say that James Gandolfini from The Sopranos also has a really great role in this. Didn't you love him in this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think he was excellent. Mm -hmm. It was nice to see him kind of pop up in a film role like this. Around, and... uh, around what time was this movie, though? I... This uh, movie came out in 2001. It doesn't show it at all. It feels like an old movie, and I really love that about it. Yeah. Well, one of the best things about it that kind of helps with that is that this is one of the best films, that, uh, you know, visually, at least uh, from the Coen brothers. Roger Deakins' cinematography here is amazing and perfectly captures that noir lighting. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think I think there's only two or three ahead of this that I think really look better than this. I think it is in the top three as far as aesthetics. Yeah, no, absolutely. The lighting is so spot on. And it's just a fun movie to watch. Um, you know, if you love noir films, this is definitely one to check out as well. Because this is the closest you're going to get to something classic uh, with, you know, the new sensibilities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think uh, definitely they're most underrated. I hope uh, more people uh, take up our recommendation there. Yeah. Alright, so at uh, number nine we have a serious man here. Please, I need help. problems? Honey, I think it's time that we start talking about a divorce. Larry, we're gonna be fine. <laughs> Professional, you name it. 
Larry, we've received a number of letters denigrating you and uh, urging us not to grant you tenure. I need help. We're gonna be fine. I've tried to be a serious man. We're gonna be fine. Tried to do right, be a member of the community. We're gonna be fine. Please, just tell him I need help. Please. We're gonna be fine. I need help. We're gonna be fine. Um, our friend Kevin uh, pushed this up the list for us a little bit, and I, uh, I've done a little bit more digging on it, but um, I've only seen it once in the other, and I, I wasn't that impressed myself. So um, I've tried figuring out like what's really going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, from what I understand, this is somewhat of a polarizing film between the fans. Not like a, in a terribly high or low way, but some people just didn't seem to jive with it as much as others did. But I have seen a lot of love for a serious man, you know, everywhere. I think the people that really got it actually, you know, really connected to something that I I totally missed in it. So I feel like the research I've done shows that it's about like a book of Job and it's about this religious man from the Midwest. Um, it can be considered more autobiographical. It takes place around a Minneapolis kind of area and uh, around where the Coens are from. And, um, and I think it has a lot of uh, religious themes in it. And this is about like a professor who's studying like a the problem of um unpredictability or that uh how could you predict everything and he's good with numbers right but he just can't find out what he's doing what kind of action is preventing him from being successful and mm-hmm. really it's just his inaction that keeps him down i think that's interesting as well seeing the coen brothers tackle a kind of religious take because um, you don't only really see that in any of their other films religion is very much so an absent element from generally all the rest of the Coen Brothers films. So having that angle as well, I think that's really interesting. I'd love to see the Coen Brothers explore more of those kind of things. Maybe not even specifically religion, but just other things outside the real house, you know? I mean, everything goes wrong with this guy. Like, his wife's leaving him. She's cheating with him, against him with this guy across the street. Maybe losing his job. He's, you know, he's sterile. It's just, oh. he's having a horrible fucking life, and... And it's like, why did God do this? But it's really about, like, the morality of men, like most of the Cone pictures. It's, mm-hmm. That's the point. Well, that's definitely one I think I'll have to check out soon. I'm glad Kevin, you know, loved it so much to kind of push it up on the list here for us. I wish we had more to say, but, you know, yeah. there's plenty of other Coens to love. From from here on out, we'll be much more confident in what we're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. At number eight, we have Hudsucker Proxy. That's right. New York. It's 1958. Anyway, for a few more minutes it is. Come midnight, it's gonna be 1959. A whole nother feeling. The new year. The future. Yeah, old daddy Earth fixed to start one more trip round the sun. Everybody hoping this ride round be a little more giddy. Yep, all over town, champagne cultures are popping. Over in the wall, all the big shots is dancing to the strains of Guy Lombardo. Down in Times Square, little folks is watching and waiting for that big ball to drop. They're all trying to catch hold of one moment of time to be able to say, right now, this is it. I got it. Yeah, so I was a bigger proponent for this one, I know, because I have fallen in love with this film. 
I don't think it's their best by any means, you know, or even one of their, their top, top films, but I can't help but have so much fun with Hudsucker Proxy every time I watch it. And I think, like, as far as their comedies go, it's just one that I watched and I had, like, a dumb grin the entire mm-hmm. movie. It's got some, some great comedy in it. Tim Robbins stars. He gives a fantastic comedic performance. He's so, like, naive and unaware of everything going on around him. Very childlike, very fitting of his character. And it's so much fun to watch. You know, the whole plot revolves basically around, uh, you know, Paul Newman's character being kind of the in-charge guy for this business, putting uh, Tim Robbins at the very top. He moves from the mailroom to the, the top floor just to kind of hold out for the year so they can hold on to as much money as possible, you know, so it doesn't go back to the stocks or anything. And so he's, it's just Tim Robbins running things like, you know, but without any awareness of what he should do. Yeah, I mean, the, the last guy ran off the table and jumped out the window. So That's, um, that's how, like, the movie starts. Yeah. <laughs> jumps out and kills himself. And it is set, like, around, like, a New Year's time. You say it's, like, your tradition to watch it every New Year's, correct? Yeah. You know, because the movie starts and ends on New Year's, and so it seems kind of perfectly fitting to watch it around that time. You know, I, you know, I always try and think about what good movies to watch for holidays. We're coming up on... Mm-hmm. Uh, what, Thanksgiving, and I'm, I'm about to dust off plane trains and automobiles to watch it this year, but this is my, Hudsucker Proxy is definitely my New Year's movie, and I highly recommend it for anyone else who wants another holiday treat. And I think uh, we'd be remiss without saying that Jennifer Jason Lee is just amazing in this. This is probably my favorite performance from Jennifer Jason Lee. She's definitely one of those actresses that doesn't get as much recognition as she should. She gave us a great performance in Annihilation earlier this year. Oh, I love yeah. her in stuff like... Uh, Existence and The Machinist, but she, she's so fantastic here. She really disappears into this role of a fast-talking newspaper woman from the, you know, the 30s. And I, I'd say that I haven't seen a lot of examples of that outside of men, so it's interesting to see that from a female perspective. She's so yeah. funny that way. Yeah, like you really get, she's almost like a, a Catherine Hepburn-y kind of type, but also with those kind of, you know, infused elements of those typical... Caricatures that you see from like those old '30s films and whatnot. They talk super fast and they, you know, just keep going. And she nails it perfectly. It's fantastic. And she's got some great chemistry in her scenes with, uh, of all people in this film, Bruce Campbell. Yeah, yeah. I guess we should say it's also like co-written by like Sam Raimi, right? Yeah, uh, Sam Raimi had some saying this. He, the Coens and Sam have been friends for a long, long time since around Evil Dead. Uh, actually, Joel edited, uh, helped co-edit Evil Dead in New York when he was working. That's kind of how they met, which is pretty cool. And they've been very good friends since then, so it's nice to see that they had a collaboration here. And it's even better to see Bruce Campbell pop up in their films, because Bruce Campbell is the greatest thing to ever happen to the world. (laughs) And he improves everything that he's in. Everything. I would say that my one problem with it is uh, it's a little bit too zany for me. The whole hoop thing doesn't really work for me. Aw, oh, that's the best part. I know, you know, I know. For kids. <laughs> I know. It's it's just uh, like the guy on the elevator and the hula hoop. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a little bit too out there for me sometimes. I can see how the film might be a little overstimulating at times. It, you know, I, I get that sense of going back and watching a lot of the movies that this is kind of uh, pastiching as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it could definitely be a little overload. Like I said, it's not perfect by any means, but it's charming as hell. I'd say, yeah, it might be their most charming, but it's also it's also pretty zany. Uh, yeah. At number seven, we have Inside Lou and Davis, which um, 
our friend um, Graham and I kind of pushed up the list a bit. I yeah. know you weren't entirely on board with it going too high. Right. Well, and that's mostly just because I've only seen it the one time so far. It's been a couple years. I will, I, I liked it still, sin sincerely, certainly, but I wasn't blown away by it like I was many of the other Cohen films that are coming up on this list. But I definitely need to give it another rewatch and kind of reevaluate because there is a lot of great stuff in Inside Louis Davis for sure. And I think it has some incredible scenes and in that uh, it's such a breakthrough for Oscar Isaac to come out with this film. I mean, mm -hmm. he has like a, it has the Ulysses element. I mean, his cat's named Ulysses. And right. it has the, you know, Homer, Homer type story, but set in Greenwich Village in New York. Uh, I really love this movie. I think it gets better each rewatch, so I'd recommend watching again. As with any movie about musicians as well, you're going to have a fantastic score to go along with it. The soundtrack for the film is really great. Lots of bluegrass, folksy stuff going on there. And Oscar Isaac has a really great voice, too. Yeah, I mean, surprising. He's he's He seems like a genuine musician. We buy into it, and we buy into, a, into kind of his plight around recording around that time period after mm -hmm. losing one of his friends. This one's early. Joe should like it. If I had wings or a dove, I'd fly up the river to the one that What is that? What are you doing? Well, it's Mike's part. Don't do that. It's Mike's part. I know what it is. Don't do that. I think this is definitely the best uh, Cohen film of this decade currently. It shows that they still got plenty of power in them. Um, you know, what I also love about Inside Lewin Davis is that it's got some really great cinematography. It's got this very foggy kind of look throughout it, almost like you're looking at a really old picture the whole time. Well, I mean, and it... it, it... It feels and looks like that era of New York, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I haven't been to New York, but... <laughs> you what? I haven't been to New York, so I can't <laughs> say if it looks like New York, but... I'll... Sure. <laughs> I haven't been there in the 1960s either, but but I'll take their word for it. Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it, it looks like... It, I was just talking more so on that kind of aesthetic thing that they ended up going. They gave it this kind of... Um, smudged effect, I guess I'll say. I don't know, it's hard to describe necessarily, but there, it's, it's definitely got this hazy atmosphere to it, and it really adds to to the aesthetic of the film. Is there anything else you want to add about uh, Lewin Davis? Um, just like any good record, I think it improves every time you repeat it. Yeah, well, we'll have to turn that back over to the A-side and watch it again soon. Yeah, I think I might. Uh, we might be able to come up with some content around that at some point. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we'll try that. All right, at number six, we have uh, Barton Fink. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you. The average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah, I guess it is. But in a way, that's exactly the point. There's a few people in New York, hopefully our numbers are growing, who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths, not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I don't guess this means much to you. 
Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point, that we all have stories. There's a lot of us here at uh, the Twin Geeks really love. I think I found, like, that it might have been our most common enthusiasm. Like, there's a bunch where a bunch of people are pushing for it, but Bart and Fink were pretty unanimous. It's great. Yeah, uh, the Coen brothers wrote this film when they had a stint of a writer's block uh, during the writing of Miller's Crossing, and, I'm you know, they made it right afterwards. This is actually the first time they worked with Roger Deakins, and the, the changeover is fantastic. Sorry, Barry, um, Barry Sonnenfeld. I mean, your stuff is great, too. We love it, but Deakins is a man. Yeah, I mean, Deakins is incredible, and the film's immaculately shot. It's it's gorgeous. And it shows... Uh, this is the other one we were talking about with Hail Caesar, that it shows the uh, other side of Hollywood, and I think it's far more effective this time. Yeah. Yeah, so I think this is a much better portrait of Hollywood, and specifically writers in, in Hollywood as well, and that kind of uh, style you go through. They bring over Barton from New York, who was a playwright there, very successful, to write a wrestling picture in Hollywood, which at first kind of seems beneath him, but I don't know, it's interesting to watch Barton's character evolve over the film, where he feels like he has no idea what he's doing, he's stuck writing this thing he has no idea to do about, and by the end of the film, he's so full of himself, and so, you know, like, self-righteous, it's really interesting seeing that character evolution. Yeah, I guess uh, John Turturro, I mean, it's one of his most significant performances. Yeah, I mean, he's usually a character actor in bit parts, but here he gets a full-on starring role, and he's fantastic in it. This is certainly the best thing you'll ever see uh, John Turturro in. And, I mean, John Goodman, incredible too. It's unlikely, but, but I feel like it's one of his better performances too. Has John Goodman ever had a bad performance? I don't, I don't think, think so. he ever has. I think he's, like, genuinely... You know, I mean, he's so jolly and interesting, and this he, time he's, he's so always dark. great. And he has a, a range as well. He's not just a yeah. one-note kind of actor. Even if he's been in a lot of bad movies, which he has, yeah. he's been playing bad movies, but he's always good. He's always the, the good part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, he's always like the center. Even like even in the new uh, Roseanne show or whatever, people could just watch it for Goodman. It doesn't matter what you think of the other yeah. parts, right? Yep, at least Goodman's there, and that's enough. And here's no exception. He has a really great part where he is both intimidating and silly at the same times, and his character gets even more aggressive as the film kind of goes on, and it's really interesting because of the kind of existential elements within the hotel that Barton's staying at and how everything seems so off, and Goodman char Goodman's character really accentuates that, you know, uncertainty element of the whole place. So by the time that it all goes up in flames, it's, it's pretty drastic. I think it's one of the best, like, documents of the writer's struggle, and John Goodman's kind of the embodiment of everything that goes against writing and creating films. Yeah. Barton Fink is, is definitely one of my favorites. I love films about Hollywood, and love film, you know, seeing writers write about writers. I'm always interested in that kind of self-reflecting process. And Barton Fink is, def Barton Fink is definitely one of the, the best of those that I can think of. All right, so I think from yeah. here we're safe to move on to our top five Cohen films of all time, yeah? So top five Cohen films of all time, I think it's safe to say that this was hard for us to nail down and really decide, at least the order-wise. I think we're all pretty much on the same page of these are our five favorite films from the Cohen brothers, but we spent some time bickering as to which got, you know, second, third, or whatever it was. I think we should say we also started with trying to craft a top five that was... Mostly bulletproof, but also reflected our values as a site. Mm -hmm. Alright, so for number five here, 
we have the Big Lebowski. Sometimes there's a man, I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, and I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And that's the dude in Los Angeles. Probably the most well-known and most beloved of all Coen Brothers films. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bridges in this is, uh, I mean, I think we talked about yesterday, he's transcendent. I mean, he's incredible. Yeah, I mean, he's no longer Jeff Bridges in the movie. He is the dude. And it's so funny because it's taken off from, like, Western and noir plot lines, but they're filling it with their own personality, and Jeff Bridges brings so much to that. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting, especially speaking of the noir element, so once you kind of start to understand noir, and specifically Raymond Chandler noir as well, you see how much of an influence it has over the Coen brothers because The Big Lebowski is effectively the plot of The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, kind of mixed mashed together and then updated for 1990s L.A. and you swap out Philip Marlowe with a bum. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, he's... He's a bum, but he's also cool. Like, he's ni- 1998 cool, right? Like, a, yeah. a, not affected by anything. Like, just kind of living his own, like, uh, Southern California lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He's very laid back and fun, but he also, is, you know, he's very expressive. It's not like things don't bother him. You know, the dude is a complete whole character. He's just mm-hmm. trying to live life, but things keep getting in his way. <laughs> and I think that's there's so much irony behind what actually happens. Him you know, uh, sharing the name with this guy who's uh, in a wheelchair, like in the big sleep. Uh, There's so much overlap there. And once again, a bag of money goes missing, and that's like the plot device. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a consistent thing. I think what's really interesting about the Big Lebowski as well, and can lead to some people, you know, a little frustrated with it at first at least, is that the plot doesn't really matter by the end, or even necessarily throughout. It doesn't end on anything. Nothing is necessarily resolved by the end. And it's a film entirely about characters. I can say from my own personal perspective, actually, I did not like The Big Lebowski the first time I watched it. Damn it, David, you're out of your element. (laughs) But, I mean, it was one of those things where this is the the biggest argument I make for why films are worth watching more than once. Because, despite not liking it the first time, many things about it still stuck in my head. You know, the the characters stuck in my head, the set pieces kind of still stuck in my head. And even if I didn't like it all, I was like, I can't get this movie out of my head. I gotta watch it again. And the second time I watched it, it all clicked. Because since I knew everything that was kind of happening, I could focus on what really mattered. Which was watching these characters go through a crazy journey together. And every character in this film is fantastic. I mean, yeah, everyone's just incredible. Julianne Moore and Steve Buscemi, I don't know if we've mentioned, they're, they're just amazing in this as well. Mm-hmm. I have to. We we have not mentioned uh, Julianne Moore yet, who is one of the the best here. This is probably one of her best performances, and she just plays this ultra feminist artist <laughs> character, and she's so ridiculous. It's basically like art frothing from the vagina, and it's that kind of like a you know feminist, uh, like, like, a like supreme feminist. Like I imagine a you know extremely you know even more over the top female Andy Warhol kind of yeah. in that sense. That's the sense I get from her, at least. But, I mean, the the film has even more great people. We got John Turturro again, who we got to mention, who has just a small bit part. Like, literally, if you cut uh, Jesus' part out of the film, it wouldn't matter. 
No. But the film wouldn't be as great without it. You, you got that great no, introduction. You have, you have some of the best lines like backed up against that, but it's like mm-hmm. a, it's it doesn't matter to like a plot. No, and it, and it totally doesn't. His character is entirely superfluous through the whole thing, but you need him in it because it's great. You got that bit of flashback with him going around telling everyone he's a child or he's a sex offender. And again, it's, it does not matter to the film, it's plot-wise, but you gotta have it in here, because it's some of the best stuff in the film. And needless to say, it's the greatest, and probably only, well, there are a few others, but one of the greatest films about bowling. I mean, it doesn't even, <laughs> it's almost immaterial that it's about bowling, also. It's not even necessarily about bowling. There is no. bowling, but somehow it ends up on everyone's discussion of bowling movies and I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's hilarious you know that this film that has nothing to do with bowling just got bowling going on and yeah. up there and that's and that's how iconic and important this film is is that it, it transcends even to bowling lists of things for some reason well i think that's why it's like its greatest irony i'm sure it's on more bowling lists than it is noir lists or western lists but it has those it, structures in place more than it is like a bowling movie yeah I think one other person, I mean, we, we got to at least mention, again, John Goodman before we move on. Because mm-hmm. this is probably my favorite John Goodman performance. He's great. Because he is fantastic here. His character is so over-the-top and, like, like self-concerned. And he has these great fits of rage that are hilariously insane. <laughs> you know, the scene where he beats up the, the, the car with the, the golf club... He's just yelling, you know, this is what happens, Larry. And yeah, he pulls it's... out the piece of the, the bowling. Like, it's just these insane things. Like, you would not want to even know this person, but dude's just cool with him. <laughs> He's cool with Walter, no matter how fucking insane he gets. And one of the interesting things as well, you know, about his character is that this design of him, and I think a bit of his demeanor, obviously not the whole, you know, bit in the craziness, is based on uh, screenwriter John Milius. And if you actually look up, you know, because John Milius did a lot of great stuff. He did The Warrior. Uh, I th- believe he wrote the script for The Warriors. He did Red Dawn for sure, directed that, as well as wrote the script for Apocalypse Now. But, I mean, they designed him perfectly. John Goodman looks just like John Milius. And he's just like this gun-toting uh, conservative in the middle of this, um, you know, uh, California-based plot. I think it's interesting that this is the movie they chose to represent California. Yeah, this is their most California. I mean, you got a bit of that with Barton Fink as well. But this film is definitely very Californian throughout. And you got that uh, idea the whole way, especially even when it comes down to the drastic difference of characters. You know, that is L.A. in a sense. You have the crazy from every which angle. So, in a way, The Big Lebowski is L.A. It is representative of all of L.A. And L.A. is The Big Lebowski. (laughs) What do we have uh, next? Up? All right, so at number four, we have a personal favorite of yours here. We have, oh, brother, we're out now. Uh, the soggy bottom boys have been steeped in old-timey material. Heck, we're silly with it, ain't we, boys? That's right. That's right. Yes, we ain't really Negroes. Oh, except for our companies.
I just wanted you to read it out because it's so high on the list. It makes mm-hmm. me happy. And uh, yeah, and you definitely pushed for it to be here because what well, this is one of your favorite favorite films ever. Yeah. I'd put it in my top ten of all time, and I think uh, part of that is that it is a very interesting Odyssey story. My favorite that's been adapted to film, obviously. It has one yeah. of my all-time favorite soundtracks. Um, George Clooney, John Turturro, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, they're all incredible here, and they work well off each other. It has amazing songs. Um, they got some really great chemistry, for sure. I love that. Lots of great bits. And the movie is really funny, as well. Yeah, yeah it's hilarious. I mean... It's like an in-joke with a lot of my friends, and I think that uh, it's kind of lived with me in a lot of ways, longer than I ever expected it to. Well, I think what's interesting and often gets overlooked with the film as well is that people forget how revolutionary this film was in 2000. For one thing, you know, it really pushed the boundaries for technical innovations as well, like the whole sepia tone aesthetic throughout the film. That was a computer effect that was created specifically for Old Brother Where Out Thou, and is now used in essentially every Hollywood film afterwards. And, I mean, doesn't it do a lot to, like, influence that bluegrass feel? Like, if you had to create a visual aesthetic for bluegrass, I feel it would look just like this movie. Yeah, and I had that same kind of sense I was talking about with Inside Lewin Davis, where they have this effect throughout the film. But Old Brother takes that and has that idea even further, where it really puts you in that, and it helps establish the time period kind of as well, where you got that sepia look to it. And I love it. It looks great throughout the film. And how interesting that their two um, their two Odyssey stories are musicals, essentially. I mean, there's such musicality in those uh, translated stories, and I think this does interesting things with them, with like the sirens, with the um, you know uh, the, the Cyclops. Yeah, I mean, you got yeah, all the of the the typical Odyssey plot points there. They hit all the beats of it, even though it's a drastically different story. And I think it's a good interpretation, too. They they found some way to Americanize it without making it feel slight or less significant. Yeah. Well, again, that's another thing. We come back to that. The Coen brothers can't help but make their films about America and the people who inhabit it. And Old Brother Out There was no exception. It's very much so about that kind of southern time, and it's got that time period part going on as well. Yeah, I mean, it's Prohibition era, and you really get the feeling that they're, like, singing in these speakeasies, and they're, uh, you know, just some boys breaking out of a chain gang trying to go make a record. It's Mm -hmm. pretty dope. There's a lot of great moments throughout, of course. We got, you know, another great cast as well. You mentioned a lot of them, but John Goodman's here as well. He steals every scene he's in, Mm -hmm. as is expected. But I think this is also one of George Clooney's best roles in general. I think so. Yeah, I love him here. I guess one of my only issues is that I wish we could have seen George Clooney sing, because in the, the part where they do, as great as the song is, God help, I, I love, you know, Man of Constant Sorrow, of course, but it does look disingenuous, because you know that's not George Clooney singing. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, you absolutely understand that it's not them, but uh, I don't think they could have performed it either, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I should say that every time I go to karaoke, I still have to bust out the, uh, Man, it <laughs> Alright, so now we're getting to the top three, and at number three, we have the Coen's debut film, Blood Simple. The world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, 
ask for help and watch him fly. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. I think it's really a testament to their, you know, their smash success right out the gate that we put this all the way up at number three. I think we've discussed it. Maybe the, well, let's just say it's the best debut ever. No, uh, I mean, maybe after Orson Welles, but. Fine. Um, it's the second <laughs> best debut ever, and it uh, takes place, it has more of the uh, Texas feeling. Mm-hmm. So this is really where, I mean, right out the gate you see the noir influence for the Coen brothers perfectly here, because this is one of the premier neo-noirs as far as I'm considered. Uh, I actually wrote a huge piece on the noir elements and influences on Blood Simple that you can still read on thetwingeeks.com. And, you know, it's everywhere in there. There's a lot of throwbacks to classic noir films like Double Indemnity and uh, The Asphalt Jungle, as well as they just ha nail the aesthetic and the tone and the sincerity of it all perfectly. And I think it's, um, I think it must have been frustrating for other directors to see them show up and hit it out of the park like this right out of the gate, because this is film's fucking incredible, and it looks incredible, and uh, mm -hmm. it's edited perfectly. It's nice. Well, I think it's interesting to consider as well, because they essentially got the inspiration to do so after, you know, having worked with Sam Raimi um, when he did his with Evil Dead. Basically, Sam Raimi said, you know, they told he told him how he raised money to make Evil Dead, he went around showed people a trailer, asked people, you know, to donate to the film, you know, mm -hmm. uh, contributors. So the Coen brothers were like, yeah, we could do that. And so they did that, and they made an amazing, even better film than Evil Dead. He must like, have thought, you motherfuckers. <laughs> like, yeah. like, this isn't what I meant, you know. They made mm -hmm. something that looks incredibly high budget for 1984. Yeah, I suppose uh, Evil Dead has the longer-lasting reputation, at least in the, the general population, but I don't know, I, I certainly would argue that Blood Simple is the superior film by far margin. I mean, if it gave us all these cone pictures, I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, one of the best things about Blood Simple as well is just uh, how tense many scenes are throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Some of the tense scenes I've seen, one of my favorite scenes I guess just ever watching is this, you know, the burial of uh, Dan Hedaya's character, you know, as John Getz drives him out to this field in the middle of nowhere, and it's just perfectly paced throughout as things slowly escalate to this terrifying climax, you know, essentially, of what's going on. It, more so, like, like, not so much in what you physically see, but the implications of everything, and just how messed up it is. And occasionally it will take a, a subversive noir turn. The, like, the highlighting will be from, like, the windows of, like, the a neon boot bar, or, uh, or like, a, what were you saying, like a bug zapper or something. Yeah, there's something like the bug zapper as well. And then there's that whole burial scene is lit just by the headlights. And all of that's very noir-esque, very minimal lighting, you know, going as little as possible. There's also that great scene in the finale where there's just the light pouring through the bullet holes as they're coming through. And that's also, it's a inspired shot. I mean, know. that whole sequence and, like, the um, choreographing of the room feels really incredible. It builds up to something... Um, that feels well shot and well put together. That's like yeah. a cohesive set piece. I think that's the, the best thing you can take away from this film as well, is that the Coen brothers really know how to direct and how to conceive things and really put it out there. 
because of how well both of those set pieces in particular are well executed, uh, especially the finale where you have, you know, events going on in two different rooms, you know, mm-hmm. connected to each other, but at all times you have a good idea of where people are, what's going on, and then the events that are happening. Um, you know, they know exactly how to frame a shot at the right time uh, to explain things, when to go to a close-up, when to play everything in a wide. I don't know, Blood Simple is just this, like, perfectly executed, you know, kind of little noir thriller to me. Yeah, they frame it really well, and I I just can't believe they made this the first time. It's not fair to anyone else. Yeah. I think uh, oh. one other thing to say about the film that's kind of important is that this is also Frances McDormand's first film yeah. ever, and it was with the Coen brothers, and she would very soon after this go on into a relationship with Joel, and, you know, they have been married ever since. And, of course, had many frequent collaborations, most of which we've kind of skipped over mentioning here, so that we can focus on this and the next one. Yeah, I guess we should uh, transition to the next one here, um, which I'm I'm very excited to have so high on the list. We have Fargo at number two. Mm -hmm. And Fargo is really the the first big, big success from the Coen brothers, as far as for accolades and, you know, awareness go. This film really impressed a lot of people, and still does. And this was, yeah, it was really their first shot at getting into, like, an Oscar conversation, especially with McDormick getting in there. Um, I just watch it occasionally just to laugh at the accents, too. <laughs> I mean, not at making fun of them, per se, but, you know, enjoying them. It's it's quirky. It's fun. It's very cohen He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him, then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah, he says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it, but then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch, Mr. Mora. You're right. It's probably nothing. But thanks for calling her in. Sure. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And it's the... I think it's the most Minnesotan film ever made. Uh, Just the way they talk is perfect. Yeah, it has to be the most Minnesotan. It has to be. There's nothing else that's even like this before it. Um, Do you even know anything about Minnesota that you didn't learn from Fargo? I don't. (laughs) Nothing that I didn't learn from either Fargo or being in Minnesota, but I feel like I learned more from Fargo. (laughs) There you go, Minnesota. You are inferior to the film Fargo. I think that's about accurate. Yeah. But Fargo really has so much going on in it. It's, uh, I would say, for, for my money, if you ask me what a Coen Brothers film is, Fargo is the definition. It is everything that a Coen Brothers film is defined by. And I think that was kind of our argument in the group why this had to be ranked in the top two, is that it has... It's just the definitive article of what Coen Brothers do. And I think it, one thing to look at is, like, compared to the things that have been on the list, it's more about open spaces, and if that kind of allows them room to create something larger and more American. Mm-hmm. From an aesthetic level, it's completely different from everything else that Coen Brothers done. It's, you know, you have the snow drifts of everything going on. Everything is very bright, except for the scenes at night where it's also very dark in contrast. As And I think that's actually a perfect explanation as well of the, the film itself, because the film itself is very light, 
with high contrast of dark, you know, kind of uh, intense moments. And it's a through-and-through through definitive black comedy. And it has been adapted into the FX show. I watched the first season and haven't really carried on. I know second season's supposed to be good, and I'll get to it. Yeah, I hear lots of good things about it, but it's also decidedly different from the film, mm-hmm. from what I understand. You know, for one thing, you don't have the the whole plot of William H. Macy trying to have his wife kidnapped so that he can get money, ransom money from his uh, father-in-law. Yeah. I mean, the, the show has pretty interesting plot lines, but I didn't know that Fargo needed to be a universe. I thought it was pretty good as a little self-contained story already. Yeah, and it really maintains that still, even upon rewatches. And, you know, I'll, I'll stress the same thing I've said with many other times with that. The most important thing to not only Coen Brothers films, but films in general, is to have strong, enjoyable characters. That's what's going to make it rewatchable. That's what's going to make you want to keep coming back to it time and time again. And I think that's part of it. It has that peculiarity, but this one doesn't have the same zaniness as any of their comedies. And I'd say, like, our top three don't have any of their zaniness, especially. I, I think instead of zaniness, there's a sense of... Um, Whack, maybe wackiness, I would say here. It's a little different. It's not off-the-rails kind of crazy like, say, Raising Arizona is, per se. Yeah. But there's some oddball things going on. Jerry Lundergaard's an odd character. Marge Gunderson is also kind of peculiar. But they're fun, you know, and they're yeah. enjoyable. Like, you would want to probably know these people. Except for maybe Jerry, who, you know, right. is awful by the end. <laughs> he, he's well-meaning, but he's bad. <laughs> Having, like, main characters where it's just, like, a female cop is good at her job, like, that didn't really exist either. Mm-hmm. It's a nice thing. Definitely great. And then, you know, we also need to highlight the supporting characters here with Peter Stormare and Steve Buscemi, mm. who probably give their best performances of their entire career in this film. How yeah. everyone does. Yeah, I think uh, I think we could say everyone involved with it might have had their best moment within it. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Steve Buscemi is great, as he just is loudmouth. Like, this is the perfect Steve Buscemi role, mm-hmm. and nobody does Steve Buscemi like he does. And this is exactly what it is. He, you know, he was basically made to be in a Coen Brothers film. Absolutely. Do you have any other uh, thoughts on Fargo you want to go over? Um, I mean, just that I love it, and it's a pretty iconic for, especially, I mean, I, th- I feel like, it makes it onto every best of the 90s list, right? It almost has to. It has to. I think it's, uh, it, has, uh, it exceeds anything else. And one of the biggest things as well is that the 90s is not known for how well it holds up over time. Many things in the 90s are bad now in a variety of ways, but Fargo is not one of them. Fargo stands as a staple of the 90s and one of the most important pieces of cinema we got out of that time. I absolutely agree. Uh, should we move on to our first place? Yes, and number one, drumroll, is, of course, No Country for Old Men. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For a whole lot. Just call it. We need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's 
been traveling 22 years to get here, and now it's here, and it's either heads or tails, and you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads in. Well done. Don't put it in your pocket, sir. Don't put it in your pocket. It's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. Or it'll get mixed in with the others and become just a coin. No surprises here. I'm very here, excited but... having it so high up the list. I've been such a huge fan of No Country. Oh, how could you not? I mean, No Country is an immaculate, amazing film. Still, it's been more than 10 years since it released in 2007, but I don't, it's still one of my favorite films of just this last, you know, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I feel like as far as the century goes, it's a headrunner for the best. I mean, it's one in that conversation, certainly. no matter mm -hmm. what perspective you're coming from. And certainly within the Coens, it's, it's up there. I mean, it's debatable if you want to slot it into first, but I think this is the one where we all kind of came together and we're like, Okay, this is the one that needs to happen to make the rest of the list work. Yep, no, I think we unanimously agreed No Country for Old Men is the best Coen Brothers film, period, end of story. That was the one that we never moved around the list. Uh, we shifted everything else at least two or three times. Mm -hmm. But No Country definitely has been the one, and for a very good reason. It's the most beautifully shot Coen Brothers film. It's the most tense and engaging. It's the, the best acted it's the best everything. I, and it's, <laughs> I think, uh, did you say that it was hard for you the first time you watched? So, yeah, well, sort of it was. So, like many people, I think, initially when they watched it, I had the same kind of reaction where I was in love with the film, the first two-thirds, and then right when that big uh, part happens, when we find out Llewellyn, you know, didn't make it out and he just dies off screen in this mm -hmm. unrelated accident, it was like a super letdown for me. Like, I was like, oh my god, I was so engaged with everything going on, and I just felt slapped across the face by the Coen brothers. And I was a little miffed walking away from the film. It definitely but, subverts itself at that moment. The mm -hmm. off-screen death, is, that's fucking bold. Right. It was a bold move, and I, well, I came to appreciate it more uh, upon returning to the film and realizing what the intent of that action was. Because the yeah. film is... You know, surprisingly, based on the way it's shot, the film is not about Llewellyn or Anton Chigurh. The film is about Tom Bell, the sheriff played by Tommy Lee Jones. And kind of his ending of it. I mean, think about the title of the film, No Country for Old Men. Who is the old man in the film? It's Tom Bell. Mm. It is kind of his final story talking about the events watching the world. This is, you know, him watching the, the cat and mouse game between Llewellyn and sugar is basically his perspective of watching the cruelties of the world and the unfairness of things and how that wraps up and you know how like it well i i think i i think there are three main characters essentially but josh Rollins uh, emerges as kind of the central one and i think that like in the way an old western would like amplify gunshots here we have this uh, fucking hose mixed into a machine what would you call it uh, oh it's a um it's an air compressor. It's a compressor. for cattle for killing cattle is what it's yeah. for. But and it's, it's like it's such a it's unique like that, thing. It's like that Western thing where you're like, 
using a cannon sound for a pistol, right? It's like right. such an over-amplified version of a typical device that I, I just loved it right when I saw that used as a weapon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's not even necessarily the best. Like, Sugar has an, uh, an array of interesting methods of killing people. He's got that insanely, you know, big silencer on the shotgun as well, which is really interesting to see. But the most intense death to me certainly is the very first one that takes place where he kills the sheriff with the handcuffs. It shows that you how is, brutal this movie is about to be. That is a haunting moment to me. The the look in Shigur's eyes as he's doing it, the giant scuff marks all over the floor as the sheriff just, like, tries desperately to get out of the grasp. And you see, like, all the cuts on Shigur's hand as well from... You know, the handcuffs on there. It's just brutal to watch. And then he goes, like, he's just uncaring about what's going on and just washes his hands like it was anything else. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, No Country for Old Men. I I mean, I have the film, I have the script, I have the soundtrack. I, I've just adored it since it came out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of my favorite films. It gave me a whole great appreciation for Josh Brolin as an actor. He really mm-hmm. proves himself here throughout it and manages to hold the film, like, the whole time through. I'm surprised it's by such how... A, yeah. It's such an incredible thing. Like, we look at everything that surrounds it, right? Like, we have those uh, those terrible comedies on, on every side of No Country <laughs> for Old Men. So it's such mm-hmm. an atypical part of that, that rollout of films. Well, that's the thing that's interesting as well, is that this is the least funny of all the Coen Brothers films. There's some moments of levity throughout, but nothing inherently comedic, I would say. Well, just like everyone else, after intolerable cruelty, they weren't laughing either. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting thing to say as well, is that basically that's what happened. They made intolerable cruelty and lady killers back-to-back, and both of those didn't do so well for them. So I think they that three-year break they took, they're like, all right, we got to really think up something. So they dug up their, their Cormac McCarthy book, and they made the greatest damn, you know, neo-Western I've ever seen. And I think that uh, we, we should go over Cormac McCarthy because... He's so unreadable in a visual way. It's so hard to translate that uh, you would say that his books are unfilmable, except the Coens can film them. Yeah, I mean, just look at No Country. It's an immaculate, amazing film. But, you know, looking at it strictly as an adaptation as well, it's still fantastic. I mean, the Coens kind of work the same way that McCarthy writes. Like, he uses words that it's it's like their films don't have a necessary plot. His words don't have a necessary meaning. It's how they sound. It's how they mm-hmm. look and work together within the sentence or the paragraph of a structure. I think it's also uh, safe to say, um, you know, again, of all the performances, we talked a little bit about Josh Brolin, but mm-hmm. obviously the standout for the film is Javier Bardem as Anton Sugar, God who was reluctant to do the <laughs> film, I know, initially, but, man, this film really makes his career. It's kind of like the cherry on top of it all. He yeah. is terrifying here. I mean, what else should we know him from? Um, I mean, he's done a couple of things. I mean, also just recently, like, he was in Mother. This oh, yeah, year. yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was incredible in Mother, I thought. Yeah, he's done a lot of things. He's done a lot of Spanish things, I know, as well. But this was, like, his, at least the big exposure to most of us here in America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the brutality at which his characters portrayed and the, uh, the unfeelingness, it's very much so like any iconic kind of villain going on. He's up there now in the list of everyone's. It's a this very, there's a kind of Michael Myers principle of things, and it, this unfeeling, uncaring killer, but still has that, that bit of humanity that you see. That's what makes him so terrifying. The, the fact that it's a coin flip is that all is what decides your fate, not him. 
who, I mean, he, he should be able to. And they have those great moments of those conversations of, you don't have to do this. And, you know, he just feels compelled to still by some reason. I think that's kind of the terrifying thing as well, is that you never understand why he's doing this. You don't even know what the money's for. That's taking us back to what so many of these films have been about, like the serious man being about the unpredictability of God and what uh, and what human nature will actually do when it's just given free reign. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, of course, I could keep going on and on about No Country, but I don't want to waste all your time here, Calvin. <laughs> Any oh, final yeah. thoughts to say about the, the film? Our oh. number one pick for Cullen Brothers. I guess I should just say I'm very happy with how the ranking came out, and uh, thanks to our friends uh, Kevin and Jesse and Graham for uh, their input on the list, and thanks to you for your help. Yeah, absolutely. This is an absolute blast to do. I hope we can do more of these kind of podcast lists like this in the future. It was a lot of fun to sit down and figure out and collaborate between all five of us there, and hopefully we'll do similar things and come out with similar agreeable rankings on things. Yeah, uh, we'll play in the next one soon. Uh, Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Yeah, you as well, man, and we will see you next week. You're a sweet little baby. 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 Honey and the rock and the sugar don't stop. Gonna bring a bottle to the baby. Don't you weep, pretty baby. Don't you weep, pretty baby. Don't you weep.